So this morning, uh, our text is from Genesis chapter 2. So we just read this beautiful text of Mary and the birth of Jesus narrative in Luke 2. But this morning, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and look just at one special, powerful verse that we're going to unpack together this morning. You may remember last week I sang a song for you up here. Uh, And I'm really tempted to do the same this morning, but this morning the song that I'm going to open with is a song by Bon Jovi. So I don't think I can sing that song as well as Bon Jovi can. Um, But last week I sang the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, because that's the theme of what we're looking into these next four weeks is the theme of home and the power of home during this season of Christmas. There's something about home that draws our heart in during this season. Uh, But this morning, I was thinking about the song by Bon Jovi called, Who Says You Can't Go Home? And again, I really just want to belt this out and have a guitar and do it, but I can't do either one very well. So I'll just read it. Here's how it goes. Who says you can't go home? There's only one place they call me one of their own. Just a hometown boy born a rolling stone. Who says you can't go home? Who says you can't go back? I've been all around the world, and as a matter of fact, there's only one place left I want to go. Who says you can't go home? It's all right. It's all right. That's how he goes on later. That's as much as I'll do for you. But the song is this this classic rock song by Bon Jovi, Who Says You Can't Go Home? Uh, And it's about Bon Jovi kind of reflecting on his childhood home and, and saying, yeah, you can grow up and you can always go back home. And things have changed, things are different, but you can always go back home. And the word that I want to kind of get into this morning that I think Bon Jovi is getting at in his rock star kind of way is is the word nostalgia. Last week, we, we focused on this word longing, that Advent, this idea of arrival or coming, creates in us a longing for home a longing for the new heavens and the new earth. So remember last week, we were at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Today, we're going to look at this word nostalgia and go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What is it that creates a sense of nostalgia for you? Nostalgia being something that throws you back to another time and place And that creates the warm and fuzzy feelings deep inside you. What is it that creates that kind of nostalgia for you? Maybe it's being at a certain place or hearing a certain song or playing a certain game. I I stumbled on an article in the in the New Yorker this week that was it had the title of nostalgia in it. And uh, the article was entitled Pokemon and the first wave of digital nostalgia. Do any of you know what Pokemon is? It's a, yeah, some of you, I see some hands. It's, it's even a little bit beyond my era. It's a, it's a card game that's kind of developed into now a digital game. Um, but the whole article was focused on this idea that there's a whole wave of people, maybe my age or a little bit older, that are going back to Pokemon in this digital pixel game because it makes them feel nostalgic for their childhood. So they're playing this game because it reminds them of a simplicity of life that they miss. Because video games now, if you have kids or grandkids, their video games are a whole industry now. I mean, people spend hours on them. They're very lifelike, very real. And so to go back and play a digital, kind of pixelated, choppy, 
you know, Pokemon game really takes people back to a simpler life and creates a nostalgia. It even reminds me, I, I found on my iPhone a couple of months ago, uh, the game Sonic the Hedgehog, which for me, that kind of took me back to my childhood. And so it's been fun. Now my girls will, will want to play this little game Sonic the Hedgehog with me because it's exactly the same game that I played when I was a kid. And we kind of share this feeling together of, I'm feeling nostalgic, they just think it's fun, and we're joining in doing it together. But Advent creates this season of longing and nostalgia together, both longing for what's to come and yearning for what we used to have. Nostalgia. And so last week we talked about how the birth of Jesus transforms a longing into a home, and we talked about the certainty of the home that we're going towards in heaven. This morning, we're going to talk about how the birth of Jesus really mysteriously fulfills the deepest yearning of nostalgia in us. That the same reason why people go from a, a, like a more realistic video game to going back to like this Pokemon game to take them back to a place they used to be, the birth of Jesus in some powerful way actually fulfills that nostalgia in the most pure way possible. We're going to unpack that this morning. I know that's a little abstract and maybe a little vague because nostalgia is hard to put your finger on. But when we look at the birth of Jesus, it gives us the warm and fuzzy feelings, but it fulfills it in a powerful way that we're going to unpack today. So Genesis 2.15 Let me read this verse. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning that I'm going to unpack. Again, the context is Genesis 1. God has created the whole world, and in seven days, he created everything. In Genesis 2, it talks about how God has created man in his own image. He breathes life into his nostrils. And then it says, the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And then in verse 15, it comes and it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. A simple verse that we're going to unpack this morning about our first home, which was Eden. So this morning we're going to look at the Garden of Eden, humankind's first initial home. What does that tell us about nostalgia? And what does the birth of Jesus teach us about how nostalgia, the Garden of Eden, are fulfilled in this one beautiful night of his birth. So first point, what is our deepest nostalgia? So if if nostalgia is looking back at something that you long for in your past, of some place to go back to, I'm going to argue this morning, or persuade, argue is a little harsh, I'm not trying to be harsh, I'll persuade that our deepest nostalgia in life is for perfection. To go back to the way things used to be and how God intended things to be. I think all of our little nostalgias find a, a root in wanting things to be back to the way God intended them to be. I think we can trace them all the way back to Genesis 2.15. God placed the man in the Garden of Eden. And what did he do? So the Garden of Eden existence was perfect. Remember last week we talked about heaven being even a better perfect? Let's start at the beginning. The Garden of Eden was perfect. 
It was perfect. There was nothing wrong with Eden. Eden, Eden as a word, E-D-E-N, the word literally just means luxury or finery. It's a, it was a luxurious existence, a place that God perfectly laid out for his people to live in and to have joy. And so any good thing that happens in the world today, I think makes us truly and deeply nostalgic for that place because that's where goodness began. Remember, God made all things and he said, and it was good. So when you and I, when we eat a good food today or when we're sitting in a comfortable chair or when we're enjoying a pleasant weather day or when someone is treating us well, all that we can say is good. But the reason we know it's good is because there once was a good existence deep within us. Tracing all the way back to our ancestors that's been carried on to us, there's a deep nostalgic feeling for Eden because it was a perfect place. But let me give you a few, a few reasons why it was perfect. It was perfect because humans reflected God's image perfectly. No sin had entered the world yet. There was creation, there was humankind, there was God. And it says, God made man in his image. In his image, he created them. So this relationship between God and man was spotless. Because you and I, and we continue this today, you and I, as I look at your faces, the myriad of faces sitting in this room today, or your digital faces that I can't see for those of you joining us from home, you can see my face. But we see the image of God in each other. That is continued on. Sin cannot take that away. So you talk about the value of community, the value of being with other people. We prayed for lonely people in the, in the service earlier today. The reason we need other people is because we are image bearers of God. And Eden showed us that from the very beginning. It was a perfect existence. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, placed him there because he was made in his image. They belonged together. God and man belonged together because they shared the image together. Secondly, humans rested in God's home. So look here at at verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. That word, put him, actually maybe more literally means God rested him in the Garden of Eden. Think about how like when you have a newborn baby, you don't just throw them into the crib. You Gently rest them into the crib and lay them down. That's, that's really the image of how God placed humanity in their original home. He rested them gently in their home. And humanity rested in that home. They found joy, contentment, safety, honesty, openness, all that satisfaction and joy, provision, They found because they were resting in the place that God had designed specifically for them. Again, think about this image of bringing a newborn baby home. You set up a crib, you set up a a, a nursery, you put all the, you get the lights right, you get the sound machine so they're not disturbed. Everything is set up specifically for that child. And that's how God set up Eden. It was perfect, comfortable, just the right temperature, just the right feeling, just the right everything. It was made for us. You find contentment and rest there. Humans rested in God's home. Thirdly and lastly, on this point of how is Eden perfect, it, uh, they, weren't just, they weren't just eternally laying in a crib, like that baby image I just was giving. No, they were given responsibility. 
It says here, they were placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, I think this is really important because work has been tarnished by sin. And so oftentimes we find ourselves in work scenarios or situations that are very unpleasant where we have bad coworkers or a bad boss or the work is demeaning or it's hard to find work or we're not getting paid enough or we get paid too much and it corrupts us. Work has been tarnished. But do you see the perfection of work here? Work actually is in existence before sin, which means that work has deep dignity. We were given responsibility to carry out God's purposes in Eden, in a perfect, in a perfect place. And so what were those responsibilities? There was twofold, to work the garden and to keep it. Do you see the, the, the two side, the balance of this? So God set up this garden for us to live in, to rest in, but he also gave us responsibility to work it, meaning to, to grow it, to produce in it, to make things, to be creative, to innovate, to help it flourish and grow, to bring new things into it, to care for it, uh, and to work it well. There's a responsibility there that, you know, think about your best work scenario you've ever been in. I think it actually helps you feel most alive. We actually were designed to work, to use our hands, to do things, to produce, because that's part of our perfect home at the beginning. And that's why I think, just be careful here, I think we're going to work in heaven too. But again, it's going to be perfect work. Because in the beginning, work was part of our existence. But it wasn't just work. It also was to keep it, to keep the garden, which means to to care for it, to make sure that it's protected, to preserve it, to watch over it, to sustain it, to make sure bad things didn't enter into it, which is the big problem then, right? When in Genesis 3, the snake enters the garden and this deceptor comes in who begins to try to run things amok. Do you see the failure of responsibility there? That humanity had a perfect responsibility to watch over the garden, and they let this snake come in. That was the first problem. Before they even sinned, they didn't keep the garden safe. And so we look at Jesus, who's the shepherd of the the sheep. You know, so behind this screen, there's a stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd. And what does he do? He protects the sheep from wolves and from uh, outsiders, from danger. And what does the church do? The church is designed to, to care for the sheep and to, to keep heresy out, to keep danger out, to keep deception out. It's, a, it's an ongoing part of our responsibility. And so I think it's important here to note, too, that, that the, the idea of working and keeping is a commission God gives his people before the command comes of do not eat from the other tree. So God gives a commission to his people to work and to keep the, to keep the garden before he says, don't do that. So the commission comes before the, the command, you could say. Work is dignified from the beginning. Life is not only about do's and don'ts. Life is about taking pleasure in the joyful commission that God has given us. That's perfection. That's a perfect existence. And work is part of that. So there's a, there's a book that I read when I was a kid, and then I watched the movie when I was a kid later, and maybe you know it. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time. It's one of those nostalgic things that I started thinking about this week. 
But the name of the, the book and movie was called The Indian in the Cupboard. Maybe you remember this. I see Kevin shaking his head. Yeah, yeah. I see a couple of you. The Indian in the Cupboard. Interesting story. The story is uh, this, this kid named Omri. On his ninth birthday, his best friend Patrick gives him uh, as a gift a little plastic toy Indian figurine. And the kid's pretty disappointed. He thinks it's a pretty lame gift when he first gets it. So he kind of puts it to the side. But he also receives uh, from his brother a, a gift of a small white metal medicine cupboard. And so that's the Indian in the cupboard. That's the title. Those are the two gifts he gets. And the only key in the house that fits the cupboard is the key to Omri's great-grandmother's jewelry box that he finds. And when he finds it and he unlocks it, he puts the plastic Indian figurine in this cupboard. And do you remember what happens? The little figurine comes to life. And so the whole story is about this adventure of this Indian in the cupboard and all the drama that goes through this story. But I just was thinking about that story this week of how that reminds me of what God did with us in the Garden of Eden. There was a specific home designed just for us, and he placed us in it, and we came to life. And we had had everything we needed right there. And as the Indian in the cupboard goes, there's some drama that comes in. There's a little cowboy figurine that comes to life, and he starts to make things go difficult. And that's the story of, of Genesis, too, is there's an antagonistic voice that comes in, and humanity eventually was banished from the garden because they sinned. And so now all of life is trying to find our way back to that joy, that nostalgic joy of the Garden of Eden, right? And that's why I think deep in our hearts, we have this nostalgia for that perfect place. So that's the deepest nostalgia we have. Secondly, how does that nostalgia get fulfilled? So think about whatever makes you nostalgic today. Whenever you find yourself in a nostalgic state of mind, what do you do with it? Do you just sit there and think about it and then let it pass and then move on to something else? Or do you, is there anything that can fulfill it? There's a woman named Audrey Assad, who it's the quote on the front of your bulletin today, but I'm going to give you the fuller quote here. She's a songwriter and she wrote a song and the song starts like this. I mean, there's not even, there's not even a hesitation. The song begins and it's these words come straight out. God on a cross, who would have thought it? This place looks nothing like Eden. But there is no death here in the ruins. This is the land of the breathing. The second point here is that Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, fulfills all of our nostalgia for Eden And he does it through the cross. Again, picture the cross of Jesus, this desolate hillside, thousands of years later, where death is reigning. Jesus Christ on the cross. And as this songwriter notes, this place looks nothing like Eden. But here in the ruins, it is actually the land of the breathing. Because that, the birth of Jesus that leads to the cross of Jesus is what brings us ultimately to a deeper, truer Eden that we talked about last week. So Jesus Christ is the true image of God. Remember how we said we all reflect God's image? Jesus is the true image of God. John 1.4 says that in him was life, and, in, and that life was the light of men. 
It says he became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we all saw it, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things came into existence. He is the true image of God. Jesus is the true rest of God. Remember we said how how humans rested in God's initial home? Jesus brought God's true rest into the world. We've been doing the Sunday school class just 100 yards from here for months, and we've been focusing on the verse where it says that Jesus Christ came so that we might find rest for our souls. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Jesus being the true Sabbath rest of God. That on the seventh day when God made that day just for rest, Jesus actually is the true and better Sabbath day. That when we trust in him, we find rest for our souls. I was, I was thinking about this this week. Remember we were talking about babies, like putting babies in a cradle, resting them there. I was thinking about, I have two young kids. And it hadn't been that long since they were young babies. But Jesus Christ is the only baby that's ever been born in the history of the world that actually brought rest to all those around him. Think about, I mean, Diane, you, you have a new baby around in your home. We, used to, we had babies just a couple years ago. Some of you have grandbabies around you now. Babies are wonderful, but if there's one thing they don't usually bring, it's rest. They cry, they keep you up at night, they require a lot of attention. Usually parents are tired. When Jesus comes, when Jesus was born into the world, he brought rest with him. What an extraordinary thought. Simple thought, but extraordinary. And lastly, Jesus brought, brought God's true purposes into the world. So God told us to work and to keep the Garden of Eden. Jesus came and perfectly worked the world, perfectly kept the world. He lived the perfect life. He healed others. He taught. He loved the marginalized. He brought salvation and redemption. He accomplished salvation. He did the work of God. And he kept all those that God gave him. He didn't lose a single one that the Father gave to him, the scripture says. He fulfilled the mission of God. And further, he left his own commission with us to pass along. The great commission to go and make disciples, to continue to do that work. So the, the work to do and to, to work and to keep now continues on through the great commission of to go and make. Remember, we're designed to be makers. We're designed to be people who work, who, who produce things. And now our truest calling is to, to make disciples, to produce other followers of him. To just summarize it, Jesus is the true and greater tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, there was this tree that gave life to the whole garden. And at the end, in Revelation 21 and 22, it says there was a tree and all the streams flowed to and from it. And there the nations found healing from that tree And Jesus Christ is that tree of life. He is the fulfillment of the Garden of Eden mandate. And so lastly, what does this mean for you and me? It's great, right, that Jesus fulfills the Garden of Eden. Jesus is, he fulfills that nostalgia. When we trust in him, our hearts find their satisfaction. But what does it actually mean on the ground for you and me in a broken world today? What does fulfilled nostalgia actually look like? Because when, when I think of nostalgia and I think of like a place I want to go back to, I usually have the feeling that it only gets accomplished if I actually can go back there. If I can go back to being six years old 
hanging out with my parents on Christmas morning. That sounds like a pretty good fulfillment of nostalgia, but we can't do that. It's not how life works. So nostalgia that is fulfilled is not a return to home, but it's actually a transformed existence today that takes what you felt long ago and applies it to the current and gives you hope for the future. You see, nostalgia, at least for me, usually makes me sad in the present day because I don't have what I used to have. As I reflect on the past. But Jesus gives us a life of true nobility and worth in the present day. That we see truly that we are made in the image of God. That our life does have deep worth. And that because of his death and resurrection, we are deeply worthwhile to God. And this transforms our identity to where we see ourselves and say, it's not just all about going back to something or going ahead to something. It's about now. I'm a person who has a deep rooted, worthy identity of nobility before God. And my, my, my life is worthwhile. Secondly, nostalgia, at least for me, usually makes me pretty anxious about the present day. Where I think about, I can't go back to that. I have to live in this current moment. But you see, Jesus gives us a life of true rest and contentment in himself in the present day. And this transforms our soul. Our soul finds what it's always longed for. Contentment. No matter the circumstances, no matter the difficulties, our heart is kept by Jesus. We are content. And our soul is transformed. And therefore, no matter what happens to the body, no matter what breaks us, no matter what circumstances come, our soul is secure in something deeper. And this brings rest and contentment to us. And lastly, nostalgia usually makes me feel pretty passive or inactive. I want to go back there, but I'm here. How do I move forward now? Because you can't go backwards in time. But Jesus gives us a life of making and creativity in the present day, and this transforms how we work. So for those of you that still have jobs and are working day to day, the gospel transforms how we view that work. And we can do any work, no matter how big or small, with innovativeness and creativity and with passion because God has gifted us to work. And if you're retired or if you're out of work or if you don't need to work, you can find all kinds of ways to continue to work and to keep in our world. Making things with your hands. Doing crafts. I just think of Tina with the angels passing things out. What a beautiful way to live out this mandate or Richard and Dennis and the work you guys do around this building to keep things going, to build things, to make it attractive to new people. There are a myriad of ways that we, our lives can be transformed, our work can be transformed in a beautiful way of creativity and making. I read a book this past week, and one of the questions it said, it said, church is really the first question we should ask each other each week when we come into church is, what did you make this week? Maybe you made a pie for your family. Maybe you made a friend. Maybe you, maybe you made you know, something with your hands. Maybe you constructed something. But that's our calling. 
And the love of Jesus transforms our work and gives us a life of making and creativity in the current day. The birth of Jesus fulfills nostalgia. Do you see that? Present day, today, you and I can live lives of purpose and worthwhileness today because of what Christ has done for us. Let me just close with a quote as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Wendell Berry is a poet, and he says simply this. He says, the world gets darker and darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. Heavenly Father, thank you for the birth of Jesus. Thank you for those feelings of nostalgia that you plant within us. Lord, may we see that the birth of Jesus fulfills all of that and gives us purpose and dignity in life today as we work towards our ultimate home, the new heavens and the new earth. Show us the way this week. May we be those kind of people, seeing the Garden of Eden as a fulfilled reality for our current day. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.